Well, Patty, I really enjoyed our episode today with Accept Blue with Ben from Accept Blue. Um, yeah. Accept Blue, of course, is our official sponsor of the podcast this month. I'm very excited about it. Actually, I reached out to them. I reached out to Ben and I just said like, man, I really want to start this year off about B2B. And I'm yeah. looking for a good podcast sponsor that's going to help us at the beginning of the year to educate our audience. And uh, I thought you did a great job today. I do. I do. And, and, and you know, we, we have to really impress, you know, impress upon folks what a huge opportunity this yes. is. And, and I think the solution that Accept Blue um, offers is a really easy way to move into that into that market. I think yep. uh, people are going to be really surprised. I think they're going to find it quite enlightening what Ben has to say. And then, um, James, you had a really great uh, uh, question from the field. Would you like to give folks a little tip, a hint sure. of that? Yeah. So I was talking about what do you do when you don't have time for prospecting? You know, oftentimes mm-hmm. your follow-ups just, you know, pile up and you just feel overwhelmed by that. And next thing you know, you haven't prospected for two weeks. And right. then all of a sudden your pipeline's dry, you got nothing dry. and you're going, what happened? Yep. So I just talk about kind of how to manage that uh, and efficiently and kind of understanding the dynamic of why that happens in the first place and how to avoid yeah. it. Um, and then Patty, uh, cashless ATMs today. Cashless ATMs. Visa is uh, sort of fired a warning shot over that. I think this is really interesting. It raises a lot of issues, um, not just about the technology, but about markets like, uh, you know, state sanctioned uh, marijuana sales and, you know, and right. how ISOs and agents are trying to, to help these companies, uh, you know, without running afoul of Visa and, and MasterCard rules. Yeah, it was good stuff. Uh, so, so yeah, um, I'm excited about it. I'm ready to go with you, Patty. Let's dive into let's, our interview. Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Everybody, Patty and I are here today with Ben Frisch from Accept Blue. Ben is the co-founder and head of business development over there. How are you doing today, Ben? Good. How are you, James and Patty? Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate oh, it. Great to have you. Absolutely. So um, I really love this topic. Uh, we're talking about dominating B2B payments uh, in 2022. So, you know, before we dive into all of that, Ben, and this is one of the key topics that I wanted to talk about. I talked about a little bit in December. Um, before we dive into the specifics, though, for those that maybe didn't hear previous episodes where we had you on, tell us about Accept Blue and maybe a little bit of your story. You know, how did Accept Blue come to be? Uh, where are you guys at today? Give us a little bit of an update, if you would. And also Absolutely. maybe just how you came up with that name. I find that to be a really intriguing name. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So that that's a pretty common question. You know, we accept who comes into the picture. So, you know, uh, the story of Accept Blue is, is short and sweet. Basically, a group of developers that were operating a, a software developer shop and um, developing certain programs and softwares, et cetera. And inevitably, we came up against the payment piece. And once we hit that, uh, that piece of the uh, puzzle, um, things got complicated. We were dealing with antiquated gateways and um, problematic gateways. And that's when we saw that there's a, there's a real void in the payment space for something modern and streamlined and featureful and something that was geared towards the uh, merchant of today, um, you know, with their needs and their expectations. So we set out to build a payment gateway we focused on some key differentiators. One is um, the B2B optimization piece, which I'm really excited to be talking with you about today. Um, the other thing we focus on is the integrated payments. So by that, I mean API and iframe technology, plus our family of plugins like NetSuite, which is what we spoke about on the, on the last episode, um, and as well as white label modeling and our pricing. Those are key um, 
key areas of differentiation where we came into the market. Uh, we're a pretty young company, just a few years old. We obviously spent a few years building this product before we even um, started selling this. Um, the name Except Blue is it was just related to the previous dev shop, which was had the name Blue in it, and we wanted to you know gear this towards specifically the payment space. So that's where the name Except came into the picture. So Except Blue, it also sounded really cool to us. So you know we settled on that. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny uh, when people ask me. I'm talking to people, and they'll say, you know. Who, what is except blue? You know, what's I always say you guys are the processor agnostic stripe with interchange optimization. <laughs> so, I don't know how accurate that is. That's what I was telling people. It's like, yeah, it, yeah, you know, no, that, that that is pretty accurate. Um, that is pretty accurate. We did we did place uh, a strong focus on the API aspect of it, right. and we're also focused on the ISOs, you know, versus right. merchants. We're not a we're not a merchant service provider, we only service ISOs. Um, that's who our clients are. Those are the right. people that really drive our, our product roadmap sure. and you know how we run the company, really. Sure. Well, so for my first question here, Ben, you know, today what we're talking about is, uh, you know, to ISOs and agents, we really want to give practical information of how they can really dominate the B two B space. Um, you know, Patty has shared a lot of stats over the the years of, you know, the B two B payment space, and it just it's so massive. I mean, it's massive. like just huge. Massive. And we have, you know, really gotten a very, very small piece of this market up until now. But I'm curious, Ben, from your perspective, as you, you know, I know you service a lot of B2B merchants through your ISO relationships. What are the trends that you're seeing in B2B? Are there trends that are, you know, exciting to you? Are you seeing kind of growth in that area? Share with us kind of from your viewpoint, where you see B2B payments at today. Yeah, so the truth is ISOs in the last couple of years have been have been facing a challenge that they haven't had, let's say, five or, or 10 years or even 20 years ago. And um, that is the ability to accept payments from within different softwares and within different integrations. And this is very important when we talk about the B2B space, because inevitably when an ISO is going to be going after a large organization, uh, you know, business to business shop, um, it's not always going to be as simple as set them up with the terminal or even a virtual terminal right. and let them accept payment. There's going to be more pieces to the puzzle. And the ISO of a decade ago didn't need to have that much knowledge when it came to the payment space. You know, they needed to know how to set up a terminal, et cetera. Obviously, there's always going to be a lot of knowledge needed, but the ISO of today needs to have more knowledge and more education and needs to be well-versed in a lot of different softwares and specifically when it comes to the payments piece. Um, that's the challenge. And the reason why I'm excited about 2022 and beyond is because we see from the gateway perspective that ISOs are taking on this challenge. They're realizing that the B2B space is immensely rewarding to those that, that go after it, much more rewarding than say, you know, your classic retail shop. Um, and they're willing to learn and get themselves educated in the different products and technologies and softwares that they would need to service these merchants directly. So I think I think it's an exciting time for the ISO world. I think there's a lot of potential and specifically when it comes to the B2B space, I see ISOs making taking this very seriously and making a lot of headway. Well, that, that actually sort of raises a question for me, Ben, and that is, you know, I've been covering the payment space for years. Um, and it seems that B2B merchants, by and large, have been far less likely to accept card payments and moderately more likely to accept ACH payments. You know, checks seem to continue to dominate. 
Um, I saw a statistic recently that said it's finally down to maybe 40% of all B2B payments, but still that's a large chunk of payments. And I'm wondering, you know, if you have a sense for why this is and what it would take, what it might take to uh, get these merchants, these B2B companies to accept card and even ACH uh, payments without looking at it as a sort of necessary evil. Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think it comes down to cost, right? When we're dealing with a, with a small merchant, um, that's, you know, um, their total transaction volume is, let's say, $100,000 a year or $200,000 right. a year. That 2 to 3% is significant, of course, but it's sure. not uh, that significant. When we're talking about larger B2B shops um, that are easily processing hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars a year, two to three percent of processing fees is a very big deal. And it's obviously going to be a roadblock for them when somebody comes and tells them, you know, why don't you accept cards? It's only going to cost you three percent. Um, that three percent is a lot of money for them. So the biggest obstacle has always been um, cost. And the way to get around that is obviously by um, doing our best to lower that cost. And there's different things that ISOs could do um, with different products and technologies, one of them being interchange optimization. But um, the one thing that, that ISOs can do outside of products and outside of technology is just educating merchants that even though 2 to 3% is, yes, a very significant uh, expense for them, um, realizing that relying on paper checks is also expensive, but in different ways. And right. you know, the easiest way to say that is, is um, you know, and I, I sometimes tell ISOs, ask your merchant if they have any outstanding invoices at the end of the year, right? If there's even one outstanding invoice, one of a few th of, of, you know, of a $20,000 invoice or something like that, that's, that's, that's already more expensive than your processing fees to a certain extent, right? Um, right. Relying on paper checks, which has always been the go-to payment method of B2B industries, um, ha is, expen is expensive once the merchant comes to realize that there's other expenses other than processing costs related to the paper check. There's the people that need to manage it. There's the chasing after the merchant. There's the outstanding invoices. So I want to talk about the and technology. There's a, and there's also the collection float. I mean, it's even 100%. with technology, it's still a lot. There's still collection float in uh, mail float and collection float um, that, that hampers. Absolutely. That, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ben, let's dive into the optimization. You've touched on it a few times here. Um, you know, interchange optimization, um, I think, you know, at a high level for our, maybe our listeners who don't fully understand, of course, is where we're taking, you know, the interchange that a card, you know, a card would, would clear at, and we're getting a better interchange rate by providing additional data. So in the case of level two, you know, that might be something like a, a purchase order number or, you know, different zip codes that we might need or, or various uh, cardholder information or purchase order information. Um, and level three gets into government stuff. So when we talk about optimization and this additional data that's needed, I know that Accept Blue has a different approach here than a lot of your competitors. Talk about, you know, how you handle interchange optimization and maybe even a little bit of the reasoning behind why you've approached it in the way you have to really, I think, simplify it for the merchant. Right. So it's one of my favorite topics. I know it's it's uh, James and Patty. It's one of yours as well. So um, like you said, it's in a nutshell, additional data that's coming along with the transaction that's going to lower your cost. And, and just to give you know the listeners an idea of what type of lowering the cost, when we're talking about a qualifying transaction for a level three, 
it could be well above one percent on the transaction if they're if they're qualifying all the way. So um, for a business to business merchant, this is very significant, and mm-hmm. it's um, the number one way to lower their cost when it comes to card acceptance. Um, and what we've done, the, the problem has always been when it comes to level two and three is that you're telling the merchant, if we get all this additional information on a transaction, we're going to be able to lower your cost significantly. Um, the problem is who wants to sit there and key in an additional 20 plus pieces of data in order to qualify for that transaction? Whatever savings you're going to get from interchange optimization, you're going to lose in the cost of labor that it's going to take right. to have someone sit there and key in the data. So what we've done is basically automated that process. Obviously, there's there's, uh, there's a lot of details when it comes to that, but through the use of um, the ISO's input when boarding the merchant, to the details available at the time of the transaction, to um, certain uh, information that we store in our databases, we um, we send along all that extra information on every transaction without the merchant having to key it in. So we've taken all that manual labor automated it so the merchant is running a regular transaction and still realizing those very significant savings on qualifying transactions like on business cards or purchasing cards. Yeah, cool. I think it's I think it's super interesting because you know again when we're talking about optimization, you know, that simplification is really important for certain merchants. You know, like to your point, I think a lot of merchants are, you know, if they're large enough, maybe they have the infrastructure to pull data, but I, I one of the things I'd like to dig a little bit deeper if you could is Obviously, you know, you mentioned 20 pieces of data. Let's say there's maybe 10, right, on a level two. Well, you know, obviously you can't like fabricate all of this data. Like, you know, so right. talk a little bit about where does this data actually come from? Because I know some of it is really already just something that you would have and you can pre-fill. Um, some of it would have to be, you know, auto-generated. So talk a little bit about like where does this data actually originate or come from? Sure. So when uh, when when an ISO actually boards a merchant to the gateway as part of their uh you know, portfolio as part of the merchant's uh, account, um, we're going to ask them for level three data. Like we're going to ask them for um, obviously the MCC code, but um, different different pieces of information that tell us the industry of this merchant and the type of products that this merchant sells, um, the tax rate based on their location, uh, right? All these different types of pieces of information that allow us to create this sort of template of level three data for this merchant. And it becomes an industry specific template of level two and three data. And then there's other information that can be defaulted, right? Like an invoice number. Even if there isn't an actual invoice number supplied for this transaction, we can just order increment in, you know, invoice numbers for this for this merchant's transactions, right? Um, you know, the fact that it has to be a per item or the different rules and regulations that the card brands have for level three, a lot of it can be defaulted, can be templated. And like I said, with the ISO's input at the time of the merchant boarding um, and our own information that we have stored to uh, match up with this merchant's industry, we are able to create these templates that match the parameters that the card brands need for them to say, okay, this is a transaction with with level two or level three data. So a lot of it is part of this sort of template model that we have that we create together with the ISO um, by focusing on this merchant's industries and the type of products that they sell. Is that something that you do as each merchant is boarded or is it more um, a transaction by transaction building of the, of the template? Right. So it's really, it's really per merchant. It's sort of when they board the merchant, this template is 
per this merchant. This is this merchant's uh -huh. template. Um, this is what's going to be used for their transactions. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that for me. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to revert to my favorite, one of my favorite topics, which is ACH. Um, you know, um, it seems to be, you know, I mean, it, it's always been sort of a legitimate uh, alternative for B2B payments, particularly for like service providers, like contractors and, and things like that. Um, and I'm wondering, are you seeing growth um, in this area of, the, of, of um, the ACH application? And if so, what do you see driving that growth? So we've actually seen a lot of growth, even growth that surpassed our expectations when it came to the ACH segment. Mm -hmm. um, we certified to Paya, Vericheck as ACH processors, mm -hmm. um, and we've seen a lot of ISOs and their merchants take advantage of ACH processing. So what's driving this growth? So one is cost. Right. right, I would think ACH that that would be cheaper. the biggest driver, right? right? Because ACH is pretty inexpensive. Exactly, exactly. Many, I mean, obviously it depends on the um, pricing that an ISO has with an ACH provider, but right. for the most part, at least up to a certain threshold, they don't even have a, a percentage. Um, right. You know, they're not keeping a percentage. It's a per, transaction, charging a per transaction. It's a per transaction fee. Right. Exactly. So um, that when you're, again, dealing with, let's say, B2B organizations that are mm -hmm. slower to change and are concerned about costs, and you tell them, okay, look, it's ACH, it's the same check, it's just not paper. Right. right, you can store the check on file. Right, you can store the check in the gateway in the customer vault, and just charge it whenever you want. It's it's obviously um, it allows it allows ISOs to approach B two B merchants much easier. So cost is definitely a factor. The other thing we see is that, and this is very interesting, when you present more than one option to a merchant or even to an end customer, mm -hmm. and tell them, look, you can do card or you can do ACH. Um, card has these costs and ACH has a lower cost, right? Let's say we're talking to the merchant. The merchant will say, okay, I like that. I like the fact that I have ACH, but not even always will they use the ACH. They can then many, many of the times actually go ahead and use card transactions. So ISIS uses as sort of like a gateway to get into the B2B merchant mm -hmm. and then capture the card volume as well, right? I'll say, look, okay. I can give you ACH processing. It's not that expensive. And then you present the merchant with ACH or card, and many times the merchant will use both of them or even card more excessively than the ACH option. Do you see um, thing you know any impact from things like the move to a, uh, same day ACH in any way um, enhancing this option? And is it or is there even any um, you know familiarity with this these faster ACH options? So I, I think it's definitely you know a step in the right direction for sure. The the one of the big problems with ACH has always been the amount of time that it takes right. for you know card is next day funding. What are you going to do with ACH? It could take a couple of days. So um, shortening that takes away one of the biggest frictions when it comes to ACH acceptance. So I think that's definitely good news. Yeah. Right. And, and you know one of the things I wanted to unpack too from what you said, Ben, I really like kind of the sales tip you just gave, which I think is a really good one. I think what I heard you say there is. You know, you're seeing ISOs have success going after these B2B merchants and saying, look, you're already taking paper checks. We're going to give you ACH processing. It also comes with card acceptance. And so you'll be able to accept ACH or card, and then you can choose, right, how you want to do this. Um, and then the merchants are, are basically saying, yeah, we want that, mainly because the ACH is pricing is so low. 
But then when they actually get it and they realize the benefits of the cash flow implications and the velocity of the payments that they're able to receive, all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, we'll take the card payments too. Just pay us. We're excited. We're having less collections. I mean, is that kind of what you're seeing? Exactly that. Exactly that. It's a really good way to get your foot in the door and then capture that card volume as well, 100%. And cool. then you're seeing, so so if you could clarify for me, when you know you're giving when you're boarding the merchant, obviously you're giving you're telling him or her you can do ACH or cart. Are you finding that the merchants, those merchants are then giving their customers a choice, or are they making the decision on their own? Right. So when so let's say most B two B merchants really um, they they they're the ones keying in their transaction, right? Mm -hmm. It's virtual terminal facing, so they're so it's going to be the merchant's decision. But we do have um, a lot of merchants using, um, as an example, our invoicing tool or a hosted mm -hmm. payment page feature, which allows for customer initiated transactions. And um, we're seeing as much use of the ACH in, in using those tools as mm -hmm. in the virtual terminal. That's what um, I was thinking. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Merchants say, I want to send this invoice to the customer and I want to give them the option of card or ACH. And the same thing on the hosted payment form. Um, we enabled the option of ACH all over. So not only merchant initiated transactions, but customer initiated transactions as well. And we're definitely seeing a lot of use, um, uh, you know, use in, in, in either scenario, both by merchant and by customer. Yeah, and I think one of the other interesting points here is, you know, just because you accept $20,000, $30,000 payments as a business, right? Just because you're paying twenty dollars to $30,000 invoices, that does not mean that you have a card, a credit card, or a debit card that can run a twenty dollars to $30,000 transaction, right. right? So I would imagine just out of pure necessity, and I know, Ben, we were talking about this the other day, I had a very large project done in my house, an HVAC job that was, you know, a lot of money, and I didn't even have a card that I could use to make the payment. And so I reached out and said, Hey, can I use ACH? And it's like, no, we don't accept that. And I'm like, well, I guess wow. I'll have to go to the bank and get you a certified check. And then you'll have to, it's so inconvenient. And so yeah. I, I would imagine, I don't know if you're seeing that as well, but I would imagine that's probably driving a lot of this as well as just that customers. It's like, look, we want to, we want a convenient way to pay and you can't pay with a card when it's 30, 40, $50,000. It's nice to have an ACH option for these B2B companies, I would think. That's that that that's actually um, you know an excellent point, and I and I love that real life example. You know, we 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 keep on talking about B two B merchants, but the truth is, something I always communicate to our ISOs is that the service space is also very lucrative when it comes yeah. to like tools like ACH mm -hmm. and, invoicing and very underdeveloped too. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and they're easy to service. They basically just need a virtual terminal, obviously right. with invoicing capabilities and host payment pages. But um, and you know, give and they use ACH a lot. It's not only right. B2Bs, it's it's the entire services industries like landscapers and contractors and, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. pool maintainers and 100%. Yeah. Right. Okay, right. so one last topic that I just want to touch on um, that I, I'm obviously very passionate about, and that's this area of cash discounting, um, you know, non-cash adjustments, surcharging, whatever you want to, you know, all these different variants. Um, one thing that I love about um, the Accept Blue platform is that you do provide this ACH option where there's some differences in terms of how you apply the fees and stuff like that. So talk a little bit about how the merchant, whether it's B2B or otherwise, how they are able to pass this cost of processing onto um, their client and, and how that works in the Accept Blue platform. Right. So 
When it comes to a surcharge or convenience fee, what we've done is, and this was by ISO request, as so many of our features and, and tools are, are you know, put on our roadmap and, and mm -hmm. our, on our desk by our ISOs, is that we've separated those fees by card or by check. So practically what that means is that a merchant can apply a certain surcharge percent, let's say to card transactions, but it won't affect ACH, right? They can hard code a certain surcharge to be applied to all card transactions. But at the same time, if they're running an ACH, they can have a completely separate fee, a different percentage or even a set dollar amount applied to the check transactions. And that's true when it comes to merchant initiated transactions. And the same thing happens when it comes to even customer initiated. So to give a real life example, uh, let's say your, your HVAC guy would have sent you uh, an invoice. And when you get that invoice, that email, and you click on that link, you'll see two options. You'll see pay by card with a certain surcharge amount that would be applied to the transaction. But if you choose check, you either you cannot have a surcharge at all. You can have a lower cost or just a set dollar convenience fee. One, one custom fee doesn't affect the other. Card and ACH are completely separate because they're so different, because the costs to the merchant are very different. So, you know, when it comes to passing on that cost, obviously, we understood right away when our ISIS told us that the passing on to the customers also has to be completely independent one from another. They have to be separate. Right. Yeah, and I and think too. To, oh, go ahead. Well, just to clarify for our listeners, and, and I know that probably most of them understand, but perhaps you interchange check and ACH, and that's because the ACH is basically an electronified check. I just... There's some people that don't may not have caught that bad. And when you said check, I was like, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you pay by check, yeah. which also means ACH. You can yeah. 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 The other thing I want to clarify too, Ben, I, I think if I understand the current state of the platform, when you use the word surcharge there, that's a more meaning in the general term that it's something that's added on. Um, it's not actually a compliant visa surcharge that's only applied to credit. Right now it's more of like a non-cash adjustment type or service fee that's applied to all car transactions. And I know you have some more things on the roadmap there, but it, that's is that correct? That is true. Yeah, right now it's it's more of a convenience fee. That would be the more accurate term for it. But we're very excited because we're working on a, a BIN API that would uh, make our platform fully compliant and separate credit and debit, etc. cetera. Right. Um, we hope to be rolling that out very soon. Cool. Awesome. Okay. So last thing I want to touch on um, here is I just would like for you to give us a little bit of an idea of the economic model, because, you know, in your case, I know that that's a bit of a differentiator in terms of how maybe other gateways work with ISOs and agents. So talk about, uh, you know, that. And, and again, I know you probably can't get into all the details there, but give us whatever information you can of kind of how that economic model works and, and mainly how it's different from, you know, your competitors. Love that question. So the truth is, I can actually give a lot of details. Our, our pricing is something that we've always been very transparent about. Um, it's very clean and simple. So our standard schedule ATI to ISOs is a $50 setup fee permit, $10 monthly permit, and then zero additional fees. So there's no transaction fees. And we're not going to charge you per feature like, like uh, level, level two and three or ACH or invoicing, recurring customer vault, fraud protection, paying pages. We've done it. We've taken a completely different route than other gateways in that an ISO doesn't feel like they're going to be nickel and dimed every time a merchant uses a different feature or clicks a different button. It's we like to call it like an all you can eat buffet. So you'll pay $10 a month and you'll get everything that our payment platform provides, inclusive of that $10. And what we found is that, you know, we'll have ISOs that come to us and say, 
you know, my setup fee with a different gateway or my monthly fee is lower than yours, right? So you're not you're 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 branding yourself as a competitively priced gateway, but your um, um your your setup fee is is higher and your monthly fee is higher. And what we do is we tell them, why don't you just get your total cost for this specific merchant, um, you know, on the other gateway and see how that stacks up. And inevitably, by the time they're um, done, you know, calculating all the different costs associated with a merchant that uses different tools, um, more often than not, it'll be higher than our $10 a month, right? And they'll say, right. you know what, there is, there are real savings with this model. Um, and it's it's obviously a game changer for ISOs to be uh, saving on their gateway fees uh, month after month. And is that, uh, just out of curiosity there, are you billing direct to the merchant, direct to the ISO, either way? Like, how does that work? Right. So one of the things that we differentiate ourselves, di- differentiate ourselves with is our white label model, which means every ISO has the product completely branded to their ISO office, their ISO brand. To that end, we prefer not to build a merchant directly. Sure. Um, we sort of say, we're the gateway provider. We're going to service the ISOs. ISOs, you take this product, brand it, own it, mm-hmm. and present it to the merchants. One right. of those pieces is, you, you know, you set your own pricing with the merchant. You build them. We're just going to build you. That's our preferred model. That's what 95 plus percent of our ISOs use. And I would imagine that's the what the uh, yeah that most ISOs would prefer that because they can mark it's, it up. It's yeah right. <laughs> yeah yeah. Right. Most ISOs do. Yeah. Um, we definitely have some ISOs that say you know we've we've never done the billing. We like when the gateway does the billing, and obviously, um, you know that's that that's something we'll we'll support. But we strongly recommend and push, you know, um, the first model. Yeah, right. definitely helps to helps to build the brand for the ISO, and it gives them an opportunity to and, you know mark it up. I mean, even if they mark it up a few bucks, and they've got right. you know a thousand mids like that, you know that's going to make a lot of money. So. Um, awesome. So uh, at the end of the podcast here, I definitely want to get some contact information and tell us kind of where to send people. Before that, though, um, I do want to just mention and plug an ebook that um, Ben and I are working on um, and Patty as well. But we're working on um, an ebook with the same name as this podcast, which is Dominating B2B Payments in 2022. Um, very excited about that. We're going to have that out at the end of the month. So if you're one of our subscribers, obviously you'll get an email uh, to that effect. Um, definitely make sure you're on the CC Sales Pro email list um, at ccsalespro.com. Um, but we're very excited about that. Uh, I've got a, a lot of things planned. We're working on really making it a practical guide um, because I just believe that this is such a big opportunity. I actually reached out to Ben um, a few weeks ago because I wanted to have a podcast sponsor for the first month of the year that was centered around B2B and going after that opportunity and then uh, releasing an ebook at the end of the month to that effect as well. So excited about that. We'll have more information to come. Uh, ben, where would you send people if they want to learn more about Blue and working with you guys? Sure. So they can go to accept.blue, um, no.com, no.net, just accept period blue. Um, I, that's a pretty common mistake. Um, it's also not related to American Express, right? Um, right. I've had people I, I, say, I, I, yeah. People, so, I'm, I was, I'm sure people bring that up with you, right? Yeah. Someone recently messaged me like, wait, I didn't know American Express has a gateway. You know, I'm like, Great. I'm not American Express. I've got nothing to do with American Express. So, our website is accept.blue. Um, they, anybody can email me directly. It's Ben at accept period blue. Um, and um, I'm excited as well for the ebook. Um, James, Patty, I think both of you, I'm a big fan of you, you guys and your programs. I think both of you do a phenomenal job at educating ISOs and agents um, with, uh, with all the knowledge that they need to successfully sell. So thank you so much and um, congratulations on, on an amazing job. 
Well, thank Thanks, you ben. very much. And uh, to plug the ebook myself, I for me, I think the the beauty of the ebook for people will be this podcast has been very enlightening, I'm sure, for many people. But the ebook gives you something to go back and reference and study, and and yep. it dives a little bit deeper than we were able to do here. Yep, absolutely. Well, Ben, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it as always, and I hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you. You too, Jane. Happy New Year. Thank you. So, Patty, our official sponsor today, of course, we just got done with the interview, which is Accept Blue. Um, Mm -hmm. Really love the optimization piece of this and how it is really automated. The idea of making it so simple for the right. merchants and not to key in very, very minimal, if any, information and still gain a lot of the savings from optimization. And I think, you know, a lot of merchants, you know, sort of look at that process, the traditional optimization process right. and say, oh, man, it's not worth their effort, you know. And by yes. by automating this, and it's such a, such a simple automation process, it seems to be, right. um, you know, they develop these templates that, you know, I think is going to make a huge difference um, in selling B2B. I agree. And and again, you know, when you're talking about going after B2B merchants that are doing 30, 40,000 dollar transactions, when you can save them 80 basis points, 100 basis points right. on that transaction, that's 400 bucks. You know, that's that's a huge amount on each transaction that you're able to save. Um, yeah. It's a game changer and it can a lot of times allow you to get your foot in the door. Um, so if you haven't done so already, pause the, the episode right here and go to accept.blue. So it's not, there's no .com or .net as Ben told us a little bit ago. It's accept.blue blue um, and you can click right there on the contact us they have some partner pages there to learn more but reach out to them get a demo i think once you see it you'll you'll love it and then also stay tuned for later in the month when uh, patty and i and ben come out with our uh, ebook we're working on together about dominating b2b payments in 2022 i think you really like it yeah i think so too this is questions from the field brought to you by ccsalespro.com the leader in merchant sales training and technology If you are an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, the question today actually comes from a consulting session that I had yesterday with a uh, smaller ISO. They have like five or six agents, and they're, mm-hmm. uh, I had a, a consulting session with the CEO and their um, new sales manager. Right. And you know, we were just talking about some different things. And one of the topics that came up is, you know, as you start to enforce some accountability or you're an individual agent and you start to work harder and you do prospecting, you know, very, very quickly, you can actually get so many follow-ups right. that you don't have time to prospect. Sure. I can see that. <clears throat> and so, you know, you start your week off and you're like, all right, you know, I got to look at my schedule and you're like, okay, I have, mm-hmm. you know, 50 people that are interested right. that I need to follow up with. Well, well, when am I going to prospect? And I'll give you the short answer to this question and then I'll explain it. Um, the shorter answer is prospect anyway. Right. Um, and Even if you only have 15, you know, 15 minutes, that's 15 minutes you wouldn't have... Well, you know. no, I would say prospect at least two hours a day. Okay. And if you don't have time to prospect two hours a day, prospect two hours a day anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, I see uh, what you're yeah. So <laughs> Just the prospect. reason is the reason is that what what people don't seem to understand, agents don't get a lot of times is why don't you have time to prospect a couple hours a day? 
Mm. Well, the reason that you don't have time to prospect a couple hours a day is actually not because you have all of these follow-ups. The reason you have all the follow-ups is that you're not closing hard enough. So, and you're when, not managing your time properly, wouldn't correct, you say? Correct. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, if you are getting maybes from everyone, mm -hmm. you will very quickly max out your schedule, no matter how good you are at your time management. If you have to follow up with everybody seven or eight times before you get a sale, yeah, yeah. rather than one or two times, then inevitably you're going to waste a lot, of, a lot of your time. And there's this belief that salespeople have. And so it's like, if you're a salesperson listening right now, Think about the answer to this question for yourself, okay? Mm -hmm. Think about your pipeline right now of, you know, everybody that's in your pipeline, meaning every contact that you have some kind of next action step with that you're working on, okay? Right. In your mind, how many actual sales do you believe you're going to get from that group of people? So let's say you have 30 people in your pipeline. You know, in your mind, how many sales are you going to get? Well, most salespeople have a vast, they, they vastly overestimate the number of sales they're actually going to end up with. Sure. So they're like, well, these 30 are really good. They all really like me. I feel really good about them. And it's like, well, if they really like you and you had a really good connection, why are they not already? Why your are they not signing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason is that, frankly, many of them are really not interested. They're but stringing you along. Yes. And they just don't right. want to say no because they're really nice. And maybe they do like you because you're very likable. Um, but ultimately you are wasting your time with a large percentage of them. So if you have 30 follow-ups, odds are you're probably not going to close more than 20% of those. Yeah, um, that's what right? I was thinking. Right. So, you know, you might have six sales out of that 30. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that is so interesting about this, that again, and I, I fall prey to this all the time as a salesperson as well. So I get it. But the other thing that's interesting is generally speaking, if you forced all 30 of them to make a decision today, right probably get about six sales, <laughs> you know, which mm -hmm. is the same number as you would get if you got them to make a decision over the next 90 days. Right, so right. the truth is there are people in your pipeline who are interested. There mm -hmm. are people in your pipeline who are not interested right now. Are there some that have a variable that's making it impractical or even impossible for them to make a decision now? Yes. So you might have somebody who, um, they don't have a copy of their processing statement and they really want to see if you're going to save them money. Right. Maybe they have a point of sale system and you don't even know if you can integrate with it and they're not willing to switch that. So uh -huh. that would make it a no-go for them. Um, right. Maybe they have a business partner that actually, you know, they're not just lying about it. That business partner actually really is involved in the decision. They can't make a decision without that business partner's approval. So those are examples of variables where as a salesperson, this is where you do follow up, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not against mm -hmm. follow up at all. I'm only against follow-up once you have eliminated all of the variables to the decision. Mm -hmm. Once all the variables to the decision have been eliminated, then guess what you do next? Then it's like a decision, right. you know, it's like, that's it. You get a decision. Yes or no. Yeah, um, right. It's sort of like, you know, blank or get off the pot as my, as my grandmother <laughs> used to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah and, and the idea here that I think is so interesting is again, your best chance of getting a yes is going to be at the moment when you've eliminated all the variables to the decision. That's your highest right. probability chance. Right. But what salespeople have a problem with is there many of them are afraid of no. Mm -hmm. And they believe that mm -hmm. no is the enemy of yes. No yeah, is not right. the enemy of yes. In fact, lots of no's are a requirement of yes. Well, in fact, from what you're saying, maybe is the enemy of yes. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. 
So maybe is the enemy. That's what we're trying to avoid. We just want to get decisions. So here's a little exercise that I do many times. I did it yesterday with a consulting client and walked them through it. I've done it, I don't know, thousands of times probably with individual agents. So here's the exercise for you to think about your last, let's say, week of prospecting as an individual agent. Okay. And ask yourself two questions. Number one, how many people that you talk to, qualified contacts that you talk to, how many of them gave you a solid no? Okay. Of the people who did not give you a solid no, but also didn't give you a yes. So when you look at your maybes, right? Mm -hmm. um, on a scale of one to 10, how much do they like you at this point? You walked out of there without the sale. How much do they like you? A 10 being they invited you over for a family barbecue. A one <laughs> being they called the police, okay? right? Where are you on this? <laughs> most salespeople will say, you know, most salespeople that are struggling, again, going back to the original question, that are struggling with, I don't have time for prospecting. Most salespeople will say, oh, hardly anybody told me no, or nobody told me no, you know, everybody really liked me. And then I say, well, where are you on a scale of one to 10? They'll say, oh, everybody really likes me. I'm a seven or an eight. So oh, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they didn't buy from them. Right, right. But they really like you. They just didn't buy from you. <laughs> really? Like, is that possible? You know what I mean? That's yeah. like people right. that are dating and are saying like, I had this really strong connection with this girl that I met at the bar. She wouldn't give me her number, but I think she really likes me. Right. <laughs> no, yeah. she doesn't. <laughs> you, right. know, you can tell because of her actions, right? right so right. when a merchant is not your client and you've already met with them and you've eliminated the variables to the decision and they are not your client, they actually don't like you or trust you as much as you think. And right. the way I can tell is that they're not your client. Their client. <laughs> so, exactly. You know? Anyway. Right. But the idea, though, is on this likability scale, they'll say I'm a seven or an eight. And so what I try to tell them is I say, look, here's what you need to do. You need to make yourself less likable. You need to leave that merchant at a four. And they're like mm -hmm. a four. Oh, my goodness. What? Yeah, because they you want to be very likable initially. Right. But as you start to close the sale, if you're not getting the sale, well, you're going to keep pushing and you're going to keep trying to overcome objections and People don't generally like that, you know, right. And what right. that's going to mean is the people who really are interested are actually going to say, okay, let's give it a shot, right? They're going to move forward because business right. people do a lot of negotiating and they actually respect somebody. Those who are really interested, a lot of times they're just looking for you to work a little harder for their business and show that you really want their business, you know? Right. right. Um, and so they'll say yes. And the people that are really not interested at some point, they're going to say, you know what? <laughs> I am not interested. So you need to stop because I do not want what you're selling. Right. And at that moment, you just say, I totally understand. I apologize. I didn't mean to, you know, offend you in any way. Hope you have a fantastic day. Wish you great success. And you leave. Now, do right. they like you as you're walking out the door? Not really. No. But who cares? They're not your client and they were never going to be your client. But at least now you don't have to follow up 17 times to find out that they don't want to be your client. Right. So right. ultimately, when we answer the question of, what do I do if I don't have time for prospecting? The actual answer to that question is, close harder, right? The reason you don't have time for prospecting is that you're not closing hard enough. Therefore, you're creating a lot of unnecessary follow-ups and wasting your time. Yeah. And it is that time that is keeping you from being able to prospect. And what's also interesting, Patty, is when agents start to implement this and they start to go prospecting anyway. So you say, well, James, how do I solve this problem? Do I start closing harder? You know, how do I start solve the problem? The best solution to this problem is to just go prospecting anyway even when you don't have time. And what it will right. force you to do is, it'll force you to pare down your list. Right. And as you're adding new people to your pipeline every day, you're gonna finally go, you know what? That one person I talked to today is actually really interested. 
I think 10 or 15 of these people I'm following up on are really not as interested as that one. And so it gives you the context to say, let me zero in here and let me actually just go after the people that are really interested because I actually, it's not that I don't have time for prospecting. I really don't have enough time to follow up on people that are not interested. Right. And you have to reassess that on a regular basis, yes. as to which is which ones are worth following up with. Absolutely. So hopefully for some of you that will help you with your time management as you come into this year, the key is just keep adding more people to the top of the funnel and inevitably you will make more sales. It's, it's a numbers game to some it's extent, a numbers game. Yeah. you know, and, and what's going to happen is you're just going to say, well, I have to prospect for two hours today, so I can't follow up with all these 14 people. So which are the people I should follow up with the most? And it's going to force you to maybe call the other ones and say, hey, I was going to follow up today, but I'm really not sure that you're interested in moving forward. Is this something that you want to do or not? Right. That's a, that's a really good, that's a really good technique. And then they'll say, usually they'll say, no, we're not interested. Right. And you'll say, that's what I thought. Well, if you ever are interested, let me know. And, right. you know, now move on and maybe you'll be, I'm always, I'm always surprised. Like, you know, sometimes I'll get myself in that position where I'm like, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, we're following all these people. I look at our, we, we use pipe drive and I'll look in there and like, oh my goodness, all these consulting deals and advertising and all this different stuff and our ISO amp and we sell all these services and you know training and i'll look at it and you know every once in a while we'll kind of go like wow we've got a lot of people we're following up with and we'll just send emails to all of them and say hey do you want this or not you know right. like <laughs> you know we'll word it a little bit nicer than that right sure sure and inevitably some of the people that we didn't think were interested say yes um and some mm -hmm. of the people that we thought were really interested say no because until you force people to make the decision you really don't know if they're interested or not until they sign on the dotted line and pay you so yeah. That's, yeah. that's the, the truth at the end of the day. So hopefully that'll be a help to some of you that are trying to get your time management in order. Good stuff, James. Thanks. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading the Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, James, it seems like the days of cashless ATMs, at least for marijuana dispensaries, may be numbered. Really? Now, yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay. yeah, Visa, Visa's rearing its, rearing its uh, enforcement head, shall we say. And just to give people a little bit of background, Cashless ATMs are a vehicle for accepting card payments. They have a lot of applications, but perhaps the most common is uh, marijuana dispensaries. Uh, dispensary transactions, of course, are banned from major card networks due to the federal prohibitions around marijuana. Um, so some ISOs are setting these businesses up with cashless ATMs, which kind of resemble traditional ATMs in functionality. You know, c customers insert a debit card or a PIN authorized credit card to pay for items often receiving some cash back to round up the purchase, you know, for because KTMs don't give out coins, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, a customer may have purchases totaling $95.50, in which case the number, the transactions rounded up to 100 and the customer receives $4.50 and change. And then the transactions appear on their bank, you know, bank statements, either as ATM debits or uh, cash advances on their credit cards. Hmm. Now, exact estimates aren't available, but I've been told by th some experts that thousands of dispensaries around the country use cashless ATMs. Um, you know, there are 
marijuana dispensaries cop- currently operating in about three dozen states that have legalized marijuana for medical and or adult recreational uses. Um, it's my understanding that these cashless ATM transactions are typically routed through the regional ATM networks, you know, like Star, Shazam, yeah. Nice, those guys. Right. But apparently, that's not the case. Apparently, Visa's Plus network is also being used to route at least some of these transactions, and Visa is not happy about that. Uh, they sent out a compliance notice to acquirers last month um, asserting that some companies are miscoding pot shop transactions. I like that, pot shops. <laughs> pot go. shop transactions as ATM cash disbursements in violation of its rules. And acquirers, you know, have an obligation to stop this practice. The uh, the memo says, quote, acquirers will be subject to non-compliant assessments and or penalties when they or their third-party ATM agents are find, found in material non-compliance with visa rules. Now, the notice doesn't ex- expressly mention cannabis shops, specific, you know, but it does note that cashless ATMs, quote, are primarily marketed to merchant types that are unable to obtain payment services, whether due to visa rules, the rules of other networks, or legal or regulatory prohibitions. And of course, this latter category would cover marijuana dispensaries. Now, uh, the Green Sheet interviewed um, Bruce Renard. Um, He's the president of the National ATM Council. And he said that uh, he's, his organization has been told by Visa that it is taking a hard look at ATMs, uh, cashless ATMs that use Plus, and that, quote, a number have been shut down and that deployers of de- these devices have been cut off by their, a- by their ATMs, ISO sponsoring banks, processors, etc. The visa warning, it's interesting, comes as Congress grapples with the need for legal cover for financial institutions that want to do business with companies in the cannabis sector. And as a side note here, you know, we're not just talking about marijuana dispensaries that are getting shut out of the banking system. Virtually any business that deals with cannabis, growers, testing labs, equipment manufacturers, even landlords and accountants, Mm -hmm. technically can't do business with banks. Now, the House passed legislation last year that would have given some protection to banks and credit unions from, illegal and regu- from any legal or regulatory recourse for serving state-licensed cannabis shops and other businesses. But it's, it's, that legislation stalled in the Senate, and absent the cover of uh, federal law for banks and their merchant acquiring partners, cannabis businesses are flush with cash. I interviewed a dispensary owner a few years ago who told me that they have at any one time in their shop, thirty to fifty thousand dollars in cash, just sitting there. They have to actually rent vault space from non-banks, and then hire armored cars to you know take the cash to these vaults and protect it. Then they have to hire armored guards. I I, I kid you not. They hired ar- they hire armored guards to accompany them to the tax offices where they pay their taxes. It's crazy. So, yeah, because you know, they can't even get a bank account to deposit their cash. To deposit the cash, right. They have to do everything in cash. Everything in cash. And, you know, just to put this in perspective, the uh, retail market for cannabis last year was uh, expected to top $17 billion. That's a lot of cash floating around there. And yeah. uh, not surprisingly, these businesses become magnets for thieves. You know, I read a report. Sure 
last month about one Colorado chain of dispensaries that had 15 burglaries or robberies during one three-month period in 2020. Wow. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting because, I, you know, I've had this conversation with friends. Um, you know, it's why a lot of municipalities just don't want the businesses there. They're like magnets for crime. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it, there's going to have to be at some point some kind of resolution so that banks can at least accept this cash. Right. And I think once banks are allowed to accept the cash, well, then Visa and MasterCard and the networks will become a little bit more accommodating. Right. But again, you know, like I said, it's all it's not just the people that sell, you know, medical or adult recreational cannabis. It's the, you know, CBT, CBD has become a big market. Yeah. That's a yeah. cannabis product, which technically you can't route those transactions through through the uh, networks. Yeah, which is insane. I mean, to me, you know, regardless of your personal beliefs or political affiliation, you know, there should be a pretty obvious distinction between something that's legal or illegal. Right. If something right. is legal, then who, like, why? But the problem is, is that it's legal at the state level. It's not, not at the federal, federal level. level. I understand. And but and, yeah, yeah, and that's where people get. That's where Visa, Mastercard, and the banks kind of get. They they're sort of cut, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, you know, which is why some sort of legislation, you know, is really important. And it's also, I mean, like you say, regardless of people's political beliefs, social beliefs, I I read a survey last year that said something like close to ninety percent of Amer of adult Americans think it should be decriminalized and or legalized, you know, right. use of cannabis. So there's a lot of public acceptance. Right. You know, there's a lot. The, state, the states are making buckets of tax dollars from these shops. Right. Um, you know. Yeah, it even, it even just, seems like it even seems like at the state level, it seems like the states would, in that, you know, it's like if you're going to legalize it, can't they provide protection for at least – you know, local regional banks in their own state to say this is legal. So you may have, you know, they may have bank accounts. They, you know uh, actually, California tried to establish its own bank yeah, for that express purpose. Yeah. But the problem comes in that even if it's for your local banks, uh, if they are FDIC insured, then they're federally regulated. Oh, Sure. And that's right. that's the catch. Yeah, nobody wants to do business with a bank that's not FDIC insured. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting yeah. to see how this how this plays out. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I actually am yeah. kind of surprised it hasn't already played out again. I mean, it doesn't, regardless so of your I. beliefs or whatever. I mean, we're in a democracy. Generally speaking, when ninety percent of the population wants something to happen, it generally does it happen. Generally happens. Right. Right. So. But you know, it's sometimes. I mean, you know. I, I I blame a lot of it on the gridlock in Washington. It you is. Know, it's, it's, it's a perception it's, thing. It's a perception yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, so. definitely keep us posted on this one, Patty. I shall, James. Out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.